Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You stand back and you look at that creation that was raised into the sky, this mountain raised by men, and you can only doff your cap. In this podcast, we're stepping into a mighty building and its beauty has resonated down through the centuries. Our ancestors always felt the need to build. From ancient tombs, powerful stone circles, to monumental constructions like Silbury Hill. With the turning of the first millennium, a wave of energy ran through the British Isles. During this burst of drive, passion and creation, an astonishing building was begun. Towering pillars, cavernous interiors, grandeur and size a building that gives a snapshot of the energy and dynamism that drove our ancestors. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. last week's gruesome episode, we were in the midst of a brutal battle, a bloodbath that effectively sliced the Long Island into north and south forever. Is it more gore today? No, it's not. It's all about peace and tranquility and contemplation and the other side of life. We're headed for a place, for me, it's sheer beauty. The ambition that it represents, whether you're religious or not, it has the power to stop you in your tracks, even now, in the 21st century. And that's quite something for a building that was constructed nearly a thousand years ago. We're at Durham Cathedral. I should probably put some context on this one. I just feel the need to explain this one in a way that maybe I don't always do. I'm always drawn, I've always been drawn to church buildings. Since I was little. The strange thing is we were never really a much of a church-going family. I was christened when I was a baby and and that was because at the time when I was a baby my mum and dad were church-going people, traditional Church of Scotland people, but they uh, stopped going to church when I was almost too young to remember. 
So I'm not, I don't come from a very churchy background, religious background, but nonetheless, I've always been drawn to the buildings. And when I go to a new place, a new city, a spire of a cathedral or a church will often catch my eye and I'll go in and have a look around. From the smallest, most, you know, kind of remote countryside parish church through to the grandest cathedral. I'm just drawn to those buildings and I like to spend time moseying around the churchyard, maybe looking at gravestones. Uh, I like to go into the building itself. You know, I don't attend services. You Like most people, I go to christenings and marriages and funerals when required by family and friends, hatches, matches and dispatches. But I don't, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really go to church. So it's not about the services, but I like being inside the buildings. Without a doubt, I find a sense of peace in them. I'm quite happy to say I'm quite a, a, a although I'm not a, a, a church goer or or a god botherer in any in any traditional sense. I count myself quite religious. In that I'm quite open to the idea of a, a transcendental other. We see through a glass darkly, and we don't fully comprehend reality. I, I get that, and I'm open to it, and I, and it makes me feel better to to remain open minded about everything to do with the transcendental. So that's the background. I've visited cathedrals and churches all over Britain. From one of my favourites is St Magnus's Cathedral in Kirkwall in Orkney, which is gorgeous. Most most cathedrals around the country, they tend to be kind of grey or, or blonde stone. St Magnus's is red sandstone. And when you're inside with the sun shining through the stained glass windows, it's like being inside a beating heart. It's a red space. So St Magnus's really stands out for me. But all sorts of other places besides York Minster, Westminster Abbey, Canterbury Cathedral, Liverpool Cathedral. I spent a, a fantastic part of an afternoon once a few years ago in the Church of England uh, Anglican Cathedral in, in Liverpool. I happened to coincide with Evensong, a choir in from Leeds, and they sang and I sat and listened to the service and, you know, I had tears in my eyes. When you hear a choir singing in a traditional church building or a cathedral, it's quite something. So I love them. They're always grand buildings, but very much grander in their locality, aren't they? Yeah, that's another thing. As somebody who's interested in places, being curious about what's happened in places, in the same way, you could go to the local newspaper office and go through their go through their back catalogue and find out about a place. Well, you can do something similar in a church or in a cathedral because all around the walls there are stones and plaques telling you things about local people, local worthies, uh, sons of the place, daughters of the place who've gone to far off fields as soldiers or or as teachers or as you know as emissaries, and then they've you know they've died or they've come back and lived out their lives, and and you can get local history just from wandering around inside a, a church. And of course, from looking at the, the gravestones, you know, you can see where people went, how they spent their lives. So if you're interested, when you turn up in a new place, you know, there's many ways of digging down into the history and finding what the place has been about. And a churchyard is a good place to do that. So yes, absolutely. And it just so happens, for reasons that I find it hard, even myself, to articulate, Durham Cathedral is particularly special to me. And I speak as someone who's got no connection to Durham. Got no family there. Uh, But for me, their manifest is exactly what I mean when I say that those grand 
buildings have a power, a latent power. It's like a battery loaded with some kind of energy. Or you know when a like a computer screen goes asleep, you know, it goes dark to save energy. There's something about that with a cathedral or a church that they're reactivated by the act of you stepping inside. It's like they come back on. You know, you walk into an empty cathedral with nobody there and it's as though your presence inside the building just makes it turn back on. And obviously a lot of that's just in my imagination and I don't know why it's like that for me. But I feel it very strongly about the church buildings that I've been in and Durham Cathedral is just particularly perfect. And it's also worth saying, I've been doing this love letter to the British Isles for a while now and the story started a million years ago with those footprints in the sand and sediment on the beach in in Haysborough that were revealed by a, a winter storm that caused a bit of the cliff to collapse. So we've come a long way. You know, we've, we've considered the hunters that walked into the place after the ice melted at the end of the ice age 10, 12,000 years ago and we've, we've spoken about the farmers that came in and raised cattle or sheep or raised crops and we've talked about the people that made metal you know, the Amesbury Archer down there in the south of England and, you know, the coming of Romans and all the rest of it. So we've come, we've come a long way. Uh, and Durham Cathedral was built in the, the 11th century, in the 1000s. Work started there in 1093, actually, so right, right at the end of the 11th century. And there's something significant about that that we'll get to as well. But all the way through the, the story, I've spoken about places where people have sought, our ancestors have sought to make a mark and to express profound feelings about how they felt that they fitted into the cosmos, how they fitted into the bigger picture. So somewhere like we talked about the Ness of Brodgar up in Orkney, that complicated array of buildings that were erected and demolished across a thousand years by people trying to make sense, trying to understand, trying to express how they felt about the way in which they fitted into the bigger picture. And then we also spoke about Silbury Hill, the largest prehistoric man-made mound in, in Europe. Covers a footprint of six acres. It's 150-odd feet high. Huge thing, like a, older than the pyramids, as big as the early pyramids. And again, it was built by people who were coming together and working collectively to say something about how they understood their connection to the world. And it was built across generations. You know, we said at the time with, with Silbury Hill that it was as though Henry VIII had commissioned the Millennium Dome on the, on the day that he was crowned. You know, it, 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 people were coming together pursuing the same idea for century after century at Silbury Hill. And, and they, were, they were wanting to remake the landscape in their own image, to modify the place, and perhaps above all else to say, we were here. And Silbury Hill is thousands of years old. But something of the same emotion, something of the same ambition and, and urge and desire is there in Durham Cathedral. People's ideas, obviously their understanding of, of their place in the bigger picture had been modified by the coming of Christianity. You know, of course, of course it had. And we talked about the coming of Christianity into the south of England, into Kent, during the time of the Roman occupation. But it was also in the same way that whatever idea inspired Silbury Hill, Durham Cathedral inspired people to create something magnificent. 
So there's a long dotted line that connects all of it over and over again. People are feeling the need to express outside in the world something that's in their heads. You know, you know they, they need to let it out and show in the landscape how it is that they feel that they belong to all that's going on. And so there's all of that there, and it's, it continues in, in Durham Cathedral. Now, Durham Cathedral was built in the 11th century, you know, during the 10 hundreds. And there's just no avoiding the fact that in some way, the advent of that second millennium, you know, there'd been a millennium from the birth of Christ, counting year after year, eventually you get to 999, okay? And it's about to become 1,000. And you remember when it was about to turn from 1999 to 2000? You, you and I are well old enough to remember that, although maybe some people listening to this, you know, don't remember the turn of the millennium. And there was anxiety. We were getting, in the run-up to it, in the years before, they said that, you know, the computers might stop working. The, the millennium bug, remember that? They said the computers might all crash. And, and there was talk that as soon as it turned 2000, you know, the planes would fall out of the sky and... All sorts of precautions were taken. A lot of planes were grounded just to make sure that there was no disaster as the blocks turned. But then, as we all know, 1999 became 2000 and nothing happened. It was fine. And that was in, that was in our modern era. Well, when 999 was about to turn 1000, there was this, some of the same anxiety, but it was of a much more profoundly religious, spiritual apocalyptic nature. The church, the Christian church across Christendom had been speculating that maybe on his thousandth birthday Jesus would come back. It was hotly anticipated in fact that a thousand years after his birth he would come back to see how we were doing. And the, the suspicion was that he wasn't going to be best pleased that he was going to turn up and, and see that we were a bunch of backsliding sinners. So there was a great deal of anxiety that he would come with wounds as red to judge the quick and the dead, that there'd be, there'd be judgment, there'd be a reckoning, it'd be the end of the world, that it was the end of days. So then when 999 turned over into 1000 and everyone got up that day and the sun rose and there was no thunderbolt, no, no fires, no... You know, no manifestation of, of the end of the world people heaved a great sigh of relief and thought right fantastic the world is not ending we can, we can get on we can carry on as before but it would appear that as, the, as that 11th century started to tick forward people felt that they ought to take advantage of the fact that the world hadn't come to an end maybe they should embark on grand schemes and it's as though all across Christendom, it was as though somebody had opened the, the sunroof and let the, the air in and, and the bright light in. And it was that, there was a sudden injection of energy and, and ambition and, and, and possibility all, all across, all across the, the Christian world. And it manifests itself in part in the building of great cathedrals. And Durham Cathedral, work was started there in, at the end of that century, 1093, but it was part of a bigger picture of people all across Christendom thinking the world is going to continue and we ought to take advantage of all that that opportunity offers and do, do grand works. 
Now, Durham Cathedral was built by the people that had, well, evacuated, if you like, bailed out of Lindisfarne. We, we did the, the love letter from Lindisfarne, uh, where amongst other things, Lindisfarne is famous or notorious for the fact that the, the Vikings, those Scandinavians, made their first, left their first bloody fingerprints on Europe, really, at Lindisfarne in 793 AD. And after that, they never went away again. They were everywhere. They were in, they were in all around Britain. They were in Ireland. Uh, they were in Northern Europe. They pestered France. They pestered Spain. They even pestered the Arabs, the, the Arabian Muslim Caliphate down in Spain. Everyone experienced the Vikings, but their entrance onto the stage was at Lindisfarne in 793. That didn't chase that religious community away at that point, but it destabilised them in a way. And they became wary because the Vikings kept on coming back and there were attacks here and attacks there. Uh, and eventually, eventually, after decades, the religious community at Lindisfarne decided to leave. It, it felt too exposed and vulnerable on that little tidal island facing facing Scandinavia. You know, they were on the direct line of approach. So they decided to get themselves out of there. And before they left, they exhumed the remains of their famous, their most famous saint, who was Saint Cuthbert. You know, Saint Cuthbert was the one who had come in. He, he didn't found Lindisfarne, but he was their most famous bishop. There was a time when the form of Christianity that had survived out west in places like Iona and in Ireland, that kind of Celtic Irish Christianity, it had different ways of doing things. The monks dressed their hair differently, for example. Perhaps most significantly of all, they, they tended to calculate the advent of Easter differently than the Roman Church. The, the Roman Catholic Church calculated Easter differently every year. So you'd have the, the Irish Celtic Church in Iona celebrating Easter maybe a month apart from, from the Roman Catholic Church elsewhere in the British Isles. And it, it was causing trouble and anxiety. And Cuthbert at Lindisfarne brought Lindisfarne into line with the Roman Catholic Church by the end of his life Lindisfarne had been brought properly into line with Roman Catholicism it had been, it had been brought into line with the Orthodoxy so Cuthbert, St Cuthbert at Lindisfarne was, was by far and away their most significant figure and he died and was buried there but then when they decided they had to evacuate because of the threat from the, from the Scandinavians they, they exhumed him because they weren't going to leave him behind because he was like a his his bones were 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 like a, a battery they were they were loaded with with power spiritual energy and they weren't just going to leave that in the ground so they they, they exhumed him they raised him with all ceremony and respect and they bundled him up and they, they took him with them and off they went away from Lindisfarne and into the north of England and they they roamed around they were a wandering nomadic community for a while they went on this journey of years with, with Cuthbert and the rest of it loaded on the back of wagons and they traipsed around the north of England not, not settling in one place for very long and then according to the legend after a time they were coming past Chesterley Street which is just outside Durham and the, the roads not being what we would consider to be roads you know, deeply rutted and problematic to travel along they hit a pothole and the, the wheel came off their wagon so it fell to the side, you know, loaded up with, with Cuthbert's remains as well as everything else. And they took it as a sign that maybe Cuthbert wanted to be here. So they took root there 
at Chesterley Street and they built a monastery. They established a Christian community there. And, and they, they stayed there for 112 years at Chesterley Street. But then, eventually, they moved into Durham itself. How big was Durham at the time? There was no Durham. Durham didn't exist. No doubt there were some farms and there were some people there, but there was no place to speak of. So they moved into a loop of the River Weir. The River Weir, at that location, it meanders in a very lazy fashion. So it winds and leaves this great circuitous path. And there was a, an area within one of the meanders that was almost an island. So very protected, almost cut off by the river. And so they moved from Chesterley Street nearby and they built, a tim- first of all, a timber church there. In that, within that loop of the River Weir. And then after a while, they replaced it with the White Church, which was a stone-built building. King Canute came there. King Canute was a, a Scandinavian king of England, and he came to the White Church that they had there in that loop of the River Weir, and he gave them more lands. Then you get the Norman Conquest in 1066, and William the Conqueror creates a Bishop of Durham, because by this time, because that religious community has been there in its church, in that loop of the river where people have started to come. People have been have spent years visiting the relics of St Cuthbert and coming to that community. And so Durham has happened. It's now a place. It's the presence of St Cuthbert's remains and that religious community that makes Durham Durham. And William the Conqueror creates as bishop William de Saint-Calais and he permits him to build a cathedral there and work gets underway in 1093 now William de Saint-Calais the the newly created Bishop of Durham dies just three years later in 1096 but the work continues architects and engineers know what they're doing and by 1133 which is only a lifetime you know from 1093 to 1133 is only a lifetime of work the cathedral that we have today is created. So, I mean, if you, for the sake of it, if you imagine a young, you know, a young stonemason, a young apprentice turning up in 1093 when work starts, you know, you know, hypothetically, the same person could still be there when the building is completed. You know, so where we had Silbury Hill that, that took 500 years to build, Durham Cathedral is built much quicker than that. And by 1133, you've got this fantastic cathedral there. And for me, for me, the creation that stands there today in that loop of the weir is just the most impressive cathedral I've seen anywhere. And, you know, different people would, would feel differently about different places. But all I can say is that for whatever reason, if Durham Cathedral's not my favourite cathedral, it's definitely in my top one. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, you you step inside it. I mean, even even on approach, I've, I have described it to myself and in writing as appearing like a mountain raised by men. You know, this thing was built a thousand years ago, more or less. And you and I, are, we live in the 21st century. We were born and raised in the 20th century and we're used to big buildings. And by now, in the 21st century, there are some towering structures around the world you know, the, the, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai and all, all over London. We're used to these massive constructions. 
many, many times bigger, orders of magnitude larger than the largest cathedral. But it seems to me that these cathedrals that were built in the 1000s and the 1100s, they still have today the power that they had then. I think in part these places were built to put people in their place so that on walking inside you would feel like a bug. You know, you'd feel like an ant, you know, crawling on the earth while this great feature, this great construction rose above you. And in the case of Durham Cathedral, it's not just about size, of course it's not, because it's it's by no means the largest building in Britain, far less the largest building in the world. But you walk inside and it puts you in your place and it's something to do with perspective and proportion. Somehow the way in which it's been constructed is still enough after a thousand years to make a modern person feel small so that a modern person feels that they've been put in their place by the masonry, by the architecture. And I think that's amazing, you know, and you walk in and it's, you know, there's beautiful columns shaped differently, carved differently, vaulted roof. You know, you look up at the roof and there's finery. So as well as the, the massive structure, you look up at these interconnecting stonework and it always reminds me of like the like the laces on the back of a lady's corset, you know, the interconnecting lines that pull it tight. That's what it looks like to me when I look up. And the the mass of it, mixed with the the delicacy of it, it mixed with more than anything else, the vaulting ambition that's in there, this huge cavernous empty space. And you think about what it would have felt like for somebody a thousand years ago to walk inside. You know, somebody whose home, if if they were lucky, was timber at most, with with a low roof, and confined space to be one of those people and to walk inside Durham Cathedral into this vast echoing interior you know what that would have done to you but even after a thousand years I think it still has the power to do that and you can only wonder you can only look at it and wonder at the at the endeavour and the ambition and the effort I mean it's one thing to say it was built across a lifetime 40 years or whatever but imagine how it was done You know, you've still got to raise thousands of tons of stonework up into the sky. They would have been working with timber scaffolding, you know, risking their lives every day. Health and safety would have been neither here nor there. They would have been massive pieces of masonry, wouldn't they? Massive, massive. And yet we take them for granted. You know, these buildings have been there for such a long time, but you've got to take yourself back a thousand years and, and contemplate how they went about doing it. But of course, by the by the time work was getting underway there in 1093, the human species had millennia of building behind it. You go back to the chamber tombs all over Britain, the great pyramids, or you go back to Greek temples, or you go back to Roman architecture, you know, the viaducts and the aqueducts and the Roman roads and all of that understanding, all of that knowledge of those ancient architects, those ancient engineers, those ancient mathematicians who had done the calculations, who had worked out how you could do this, how much how much weight could be supported by such and such an arch. You know, the knowledge was there to draw upon. And so, you know, by 1093, when work got underway at Durham Cathedral, the architects and the builders there were able to draw upon a rich reservoir of, of knowledge but even so, you know, you stand back and you look at that creation that was raised into the sky, this mountain raised by men, 
and you can only doff your cap. You can only nod your head in respect at what was attempted and what was achieved. And for me, I, I travel up and down between Scotland and England and quite often I, I travel by train. And if I go down, as I often do from Edinburgh, on the East Coast main line, you pass Durham. Durham Cathedral sits up. Even now, even now, you know, with everything else that's happened, you know, Durham Cathedral is still visible. It still says, it still sort of broadcasts a signal, I am here. You can't miss it. It was as though the builders of these places, they struck a perfect note. You know, they just, they just struck a perfect note and, and, and it reverberates. It resonates. And the worthwhile resonance of the sound that they made when they created those places, we can still hear it. And you walk inside them, St Magnus's, York Minster, Westminster Abbey, Canterbury, Liverpool, Durham Cathedral. You walk in and you, you approach the, the nave and you walk down towards the, the high altar in the east. And the power of the, of the way in which that interior space is choreographed, it's just, it's majestic. Whether you're Christian or another faith or no faith at all, what was attempted and what was achieved in the construction of places like Durham Cathedral is just, to me, breathtaking. It fills you with respect for your ancestors, doesn't it? it, it uh, yes, it absolutely does. It's one thing to say that they were drawing upon hundreds and thousands of years of, of understanding of, of engineering and, and architecture, which they were. They were looking back and seeking to emulate some of the achievements of Rome and, and, and Greece and the rest. But still, their toolkit, by comparison to ours, was so limited. You know, they had the capability to do it. We can see that by the fact that they made it real. But timber scaffolding lashed together with ropes, people working by hand, no power tools, metal chisels, wooden hammers, steel hammers, and the, and the sheer labour of mixing mortar and raising it up tens, hundreds of feet into the air, you know, so that blocks that were big enough to crush a man could be moved perfectly into place. The physical effort, and you can, you can tell that, you know, to some extent they were driven by something more than just the kind of modern ambition that we would think about. At least in part, they were driven by faith. They were making real, they were manifesting the, the magnificence that they understood in the God that they worshipped. And it presumably enabled them to do some of the extraordinary things that they did because they, you know, they felt that it mattered. They weren't building it for themselves, they were building it for the future and they were building it for the God that they believed in. The birth of democracy, a battling king, rebellious barons and a power struggle that led to a new order, a document of seismic significance that has helped shape world history. Not even a king is above the law. 
next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter, the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. The music's by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And a special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.